Simple Beep, episode 72, the App Store at 10. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And we'll begin every episode, as we always do, with some follow-up. And this follow-up is actually a huge thank you to many of our listeners. So last episode on Mac typography, we also announced that we were doing a shirt campaign for the first time in a few years. And with the help of all of you who purchased shirts and the Cotton Bureau, who were totally awesome throughout the whole process, our campaign was successful and funded and will go towards keeping Simple Beep on the internet for another year or so you know, paying those hosting bills and those kinds of things. Um, And for those of you who are wanting an update on your shirt's progress, if you ordered one, uh, according to Cotton Bureau, they are right now in production, and the estimated ship date is somewhere in the second half of this month, July 18th to August 1st. So they should be headed to you very soon, especially if you're in the United States. And standard disclaimer, sorry to all of our international listeners who would have had to pay through the nose to get a shirt from Cotton Bureau. We we apologize, but uh, we were really happy with the experience that we had with them. I mean, they really went the extra mile uh, getting our campaign going, and then they announced that they were starting printing on their new blank t-shirts that they make themselves, like, two-thirds of the way through the two-week-long campaign, and we just tweeted at them, like, hey, any chance that we could do this? And yes, they, like, switched over uh, and added extra colors so that we could give that as an option as well. So uh went really well, and thanks again to all of you, and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, wearing your shirts uh, in the future. Our other piece of follow-up for this episode is also related to our previous episode about typography. Uh, MacFixer on Twitter wrote in to remind us that we missed an Apple font, Apple Casual. And I had zero recollection of this, uh, but uh, MacFixer pointed out that it was not just used to kind of uh, simulate handwriting on the Newton, but it also is embedded into OS X, maybe not so much anymore, but certainly the the kind of like middle releases of OS X as the font used with the ink uh, system feature for handwriting recognition. The Newton always our uh, blind spot there. But yeah, I did recognize this font once it was brought to our attention. And I don't know, maybe uh, was it ever used in uh, early Apple Keynotes as well? One of those kind of weird uh, handwriting-like fonts on, on some of the slides uh, before they went all Gil Sands or then eventually all Helvetica and all San Francisco. It almost looks like a precursor to the chalkboard font that is kind of like a, a mix between this and Comic Sans. So I'm sure it's it's got a, a storied history we we don't know about. So that wraps it up for some quick follow-up, and let's move on to our topic, a, another anniversary to celebrate. And this one snuck up on us a little bit. So about a year ago, we did the 10-year retrospective on the iPhone, and we should have just done the simple math from that, that one year after the iPhone's release, the hardware release that was very important, came another important release, which was the launching of the App Store. Uh, and so a lot of people in the community are celebrating this like right now as we record. We're recording on July 10th, which is the actual anniversary, and so you'll be hearing this a few days later at minimum. And lots of people going back and talking about the most meaningful apps, ones that really 
brought the platform forward, ones that they're still using today, mourning long lost apps. And we're going to do a little bit of that in the main part of the show, some of our favorite picks. But first, we want to give a little bit of the timeline and history as we like to do. So let's go back to before the App Store. This is the the one year of uh, time that the iPhone was out. And the only native apps that were available on the phone were the ones that were coded by Apple and shipped with the device. And if you go back, if you remember to the iPhone launch, <laughs> when the iPhone was launched, not even many of those apps existed yet. Like uh, when they gave demos and said, like, don't touch that, it's just a screenshot, or just like showing the iPhone hardware in, in a glass cylinder and not letting anyone actually run it when it was announced. And then, of course, when it launched later in the year, it did have all of those stock Apple apps fully functioning over the uh, over the edge connection. <laughs> oh, God. And Apple knew that they needed to uh, beef up the capabilities when the iPhone 3G was being developed, and it was going to offer really a lot more capability to users and also to developers. So in that year-long period, Apple announced at WWDC in 2007 that app developers would have a way of creating experiences on iPhone for themselves. And this was what Steve Jobs termed the sweet solution. Very sweet solution. Which was not native applications that was still going to be reserved exclusively for Apple, but for developers to make essentially like responsive web apps. And there's a whole, we'll link to a YouTube video uh, that includes uh, where he announces this. And he really touts it, like all of the benefits and none of the drawbacks. Uh, things like, oh, well, since you're just running code on your server, you can update it anytime and things like that. But it meant that people weren't, who were developing, weren't getting like actual multi-touch events or a whole lot of the things that the internal uh, first-party iPhone apps could do. And people at WWDC were underwhelmed by this announcement. I think the most famous example of this is John Gruber at Daring Fireball, uh, who was summing up the keynote that year and called the sweet solution proposed by Steve Jobs a smiling pile of poo sandwich. <laughs> and then um, one of the best Daring Fireball anecdotes in all of history uh, came a several years later in retrospect on the talk show. And we'll link to this. Uh, we'll give a timestamp link. And for those of you who are sensitive or playing uh, audio in the car with children, this is the uh, not safe for work retelling of this story. Um, but basically where the very next day, John Gruber was in the hall at Moscone and ran into Phil Schiller and introduced himself for the first time, and it turned out that Schiller had read the article from that was posted just the day before, calling the uh, the app development solution a not very nice phrase, <laughs> and he just like called him on it immediately, and uh, the conversation went from there. And I'll talk a little bit more about the sweet solution uh, later in this episode, and it, it never actually went away. Like Ed said, the the progressive web app or responsive web app movement is, you know, still alive and well, I think, 
uh, Twitter is certainly one, and I know a couple other companies are making these web apps even targeted toward desktops. I think Windows 10 or one of the latest <laughs> versions of Windows integrates native apps that you know are executable bundles, as well as these uh, kind of like local cacheable progressive web apps in their store together. So the, the whole idea of writing web apps that look like native apps and feel almost like native apps hasn't gone away. And uh, in going back to look at the, the Daring Fireball coverage about this, I found an article from late 2009, so well after the App Store has launched and native apps are uh, very much a thing, called Pastry Kit, where uh, Gruber kind of revisited the difference between native apps and web apps and all the, the, the pros and cons of both and did a little bit of investigative journalism where he tried to find a good example of a web app that performed and looked like a native app on the iPhone, which was the iPhone user guide. Uh, I think it was pre-installed as a bookmark, maybe in Safari, but it had all the extra HTML5 stuff in there so that you could install it as a home screen app that would run outside of Safari Chrome and have its own uh, icon in multitasking, although I guess this was before multitasking. Anyway, uh, in looking at the little bits of JavaScript that helped make scrolling feel a little smoother and other things like that, he was able to find that they were part of this library called Pastry Kit that seemed homegrown by Apple to maybe help uh, execute the vision of <laughs> the sweet solution and making web apps that, for all intents and purposes, looked and felt like native apps. But uh, I had totally forgotten that this ever came to light. I was definitely reading during Fireball in 2009. Uh, so I think that, that this means Pastry Kit never really saw the light of day as an Apple-sponsored uh, code library. So maybe that's all the the signs we need that native apps, at least on iOS, are truly the way to go. I wonder which of those phrases came first. Like, is pastry a nod to the phrase sweet solution because pastries are sweet? Your guess is as good as mine. I do like I do like that. But needless to say that in this moment, the the sweet solution moment and that year long period, it was pretty divisive among develop developers. So there were the ones who were just disappointed. And then there were the ones who immediately said, screw it, we're jailbreaking all of our devices, and we're going to write native code anyway. And we'll get to some of those later on. But I think that as some of the actually best developers were going the jailbreak route, that was one of the things that put pressure on Apple to actually have a native SDK and, and proper solution for native development on iOS, because they saw that excellent things were being done, and suddenly they were out of their control. So that brings us to a year later, and the announcement and then launch of the App Store itself. So the launch, as we said, was on July 10, 2008. And at launch, I mean, remember that uh, the iPhone SDK had only been out for a very short period at this point. Um so like a matter of weeks. So the apps that were there on the first day were people who really hustled and or had a lot of jailbreak native code running before that then they were able to adapt to the SDK. 
And so this meant that a lot of the apps that were at launch were fairly simple because of both the capabilities of the device and the amount of time that had been actually, you know, hours of development that had been put into them. So there were 500 apps total. And according to some press coverage at that time, about 25% of those apps were free. 75% of them were paid apps, and of the paid apps, 90% cost $9.99 or less, (laughs) which means that 10% of them cost more than $10, which is just like unheard of on the App Store today. I would say like 0.001% of apps on the App Store today cost more than $10. And um, I think also a little bit of a different balance, about a third of them were games. So that, that, I don't know, it's probably hard to gauge right now how many, like what percentage of apps, uh, as opposed to like what percentage of sales or things like that are from games on the app store. Uh, but it was a healthy balance. And as we know, uh, games have been very important in the entire 10 year run of the app store. And a couple of interesting features to point out that were part of the app store app itself at launch. Um, it had tabs across the bottom, and one of them was featured apps. So from the very beginning, Apple was doing curation and promotion of apps that they thought were really highlighting the platform. Um, I think like there are a lot of screenshots that I've seen going around over the past couple of days of like, here's one of the three remaining screenshots we have of the, the App Store on day one. It's like Chromag Rally. Enigma. Oh, yeah. Enigma, which was a Mac port from Pangea. And then there were also the uh, top selling lists. And so those were there from day one and were, again, starting to shape what was going to become the App Store economy and the ways that people evaluated success within the App Store. I think it's also worth pointing out and remembering that the App Store was pretty much an extension of the iTunes music store and, you know, built on the same web objects framework. And I think kind of shoehorned into the database that set up the organizational structure for music. Because I remember hearing a developer say that when they went through iTunes Connect, which was truly like an iTunes Connect for musicians, you had to enter your company, or if you were a solo developer, your name as the record label. (laughs) which is just ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) That is funny. Along with the launch of the App Store came a a well-remembered ad campaign. We've talked about the uh, Hello, I'm a Mac, Hello, I'm a PC ad campaign, the Think Different campaign. And I think that the there's an app for that campaign is right up there with them. It was a phrase that entered the cultural lexicon, uh, very easily parodied, and um, also something that would come up often in real life. Uh, I was living in San Francisco or in Palo Alto in the Bay Area at the time. And whether I was with peers in the tech industry or just my family or other people, it was a very common thing to say, like, I have an idea. Uh, This is something that your new whiz-bang phone should be able to do. And inevitably, either someone would say, we could make an app for that, or there's already an app for that. And there was a lot of truth in it um, because... Opening up the native SDK really made it so that pretty much any feature of the phone that existed at the time, um, you know, opening up audio playback, the microphone, the camera, 
all of those things was going way beyond basically there being like, well, there's a, there's a website that does something that or provides information that you might want. Uh, it really did open up a lot of possibilities. Um, and <laughs> yeah, you're saying like often parodied, but I think that even as the like currency of the phrase has gone away, I think that it's stuck with the concept of like, if there is some goal that you want to accomplish on your phone, now there may be several apps that accomplish that goal. And you rarely think of something where you're like, I bet you might not like the alternatives that are out there. Sometimes revered apps or well-designed apps that perform a particular function go away and that market is left a little bit empty, like flight tracking apps. Uh, still, you know, one of the best ones in that field got shut down a couple years ago and like, there isn't a great one that's replaced it, but there are 20 okay apps for it. So people have this idea that that they should not only be able to find, you know, to add capabilities to their phone, but they should be able to find them in one place. And now they think that they should all be free, um, which is sometimes unrealistic, but it's just the way that uh, the app store mentality has shaped how people think of smartphones. And, I don't know, like not thinking that way is a, a way to like really not enjoy or take advantage of your phone. There's this like terrible Samsung Galaxy ad that I've been seeing recently where the guy's like, oh, my phone is slow. And then like someone bursts through a wall <laughs> is like, do you need a selfie? It's like, it's this really dumb ad. And um, he's like, okay. And she's like, okay, Google, take a selfie. And it, the ad ends with him going, it can do that. It's like, well, dude, come on. Like, you know, okay, you have a voice assistant in your phone. Like, ask it a question. Don't just sit there like an idiot. Um, the same thing. Like, you're st staring at your phone going, gee, I wonder if I can find restaurants. Like, yeah, go to the app store. There are a million ways to find restaurants. Uh, Ed mentioned the kind of the pricing breakdown at the launch of the app store. And as we know now, a couple features or tools have been added into the SDK and the App Store to shift the economics of the App Store towards a, a place where only a quarter of the apps are free uh, seems like a joke. So in 2009, in-app purchases were added, the ability to maybe have an app that is free in the store, but can charge you for uh, upgrades within it, or as is probably more commonly used, uh, like gems or coins or in-app currency to feed the addiction. Right. And so those those 25% of developers who decide to make their apps free in the very begin, well, in the first yeah year or so of the App Store, were basically saying, we don't want to see any direct revenue from this ever, right? They, they were giving up on that. Anyone who downloaded their app just had it. Uh, and unless there was some other there was some other means that they were charging people or they were just in the uh, acquire users phase, um, then they were not going to achieve any any sort of revenue goal uh, from a free app. It was it was locked in until the advent of IAPs. And a couple of years later, uh, the very first kinds of app subscriptions were launched, but these were only available to certain types of apps. And I really think like periodicals or 
or like media that comes to you on a regular basis. And so you pay per issue or episode or whatever. And I think that it was locked in with the, uh, the newsstand apps, which were a weird kind of ghetto of apps because, um, you had to be in this particular folder and you had to have a weird different kind of icon, but you still had to code a complete native iOS app. Um, yeah, there was this potential for subscription revenue, but the, all of the limitations led to the rise and quick fall of, of newsstand. And then in 2016, the, the wider array of subscriptions, uh, was launched and I think is maybe the dominant form or a vocal minority of, uh, people who are resisting this, uh, burgeoning form of revenue for app developers where it's free up front, but you, you pay a moderate subscription fee for anything from media, uh, periodicals to a productivity app. So those are some of the major milestones in the way that the App Store has functioned over the past 10 years. Uh, the ones I think are most relevant to figuring out which apps have survived, how the overall uh metrics and economy of the store has changed. But if you want a really detailed blow-by-blow, feature-by-feature, OS release-by-OS release timeline of this, we will put in the show notes a link to an article that just went up on Mac Stories today by a friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, who has put together this article that is called 10 Years of App Store, A Timeline of Changes. And it really is uh, a detailed timeline of, it's basically commentary on the release notes for the App Store app, if those <laughs> existed, um, with lots of screenshots uh, and goes all the way from the uh, very first launch of the App Store to where we stand in iOS 12 betas as we record this. For the rest of this episode, we're going to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the App Store with more or less, 10 of our favorite apps that were in the store either at day one or very early on. Yeah, so I was going through this and compiling my list based on my purchase history in the App Store, uh, which meant lots of scrolling, scrolling, scrolling all the way down to the bottom. And I believe that my first app purchases were on August 3 of 2008. Uh, My first iPhone was the 3G. And... Uh, I, of course, started downloading apps onto it basically the first day that I got it. And it's interesting to see that some of those lasted a long time and some of those uh, just they're gone, you know, grayed out download icons next to them. (laughs) And some of them took lasted a while, but then uh, were replaced. And the first one, though, actually, I think this was my number one first downloaded app was the Pandora app. Um, so remember that when the iPhone was launched, one of the things that it was billed as was, you know, the widescreen iPod with touch controls. So very much a music playback device. And as much as I loved my iTunes library and played that a lot on my iPods and on my Mac previous to that, at this time, I had, this was, I think, maybe a couple years after Pandora had been like saved where there was there was some issue of whether they were basically going to be like sued or regulated out of existence based on uh, the streaming per play fees that they were charging. But they were back. They had 
a really good service, but it was in the browser and it required Flash and it didn't respond to the media playback controls and it was just generally a mess. But they came very quickly to the iPhone because they also saw like these are perfect, you know, handheld pocket music playback devices. And so they launched their app very early. I think it was, you know, ambitious of them. This was before even background audio was available, uh, right? Because this is in iPhone OS 2. So um, you would have to have the app like foremost on the screen uh, to actually play. But I did run it a lot. Um, And I'll post a picture uh, on the episode page. I used to run it on my phone plugged into my desktop computer speakers and then like the phone plugged in over a 30 pin connector to charge um, just so that I could have that like dedicated media playback um, and not have to like, you know, make my laptop fans spin running flash or worry that like the tab would crash or that um, yeah, I would close it accidentally and, and lose my place. Um then later on the desktop, I started using an app called Pandora Jam, which uh, would actually just like it basically just ran a mini web view um, and was able to snatch the media controls. And then also gave this kid because it was it was loading and controlling the entire web page. It was actually able it was getting the you know decrypted mp3 audio files via the flash oh cool and so there was a button where you could just press record and it would just save the audio files out to your computer and it lasted for years years longer than i thought but then eventually pandora legal got in touch with them and said you should not be doing this <laughs> um and the app no longer exists but uh the pandora app uh was was one of my first uh, used it a ton, um, especially on like unlimited data, right? You know, doesn't count against anything to stream as much music as you want uh, on the go. Uh, was really great and didn't get replaced for me until uh, until I signed up for Spotify like two years ago. That's really cool. I was an iTunes, like crotchety old man, put the MP3s on my computer where I can see them and likewise put them on the iPhone where I can see them uh, to this day. I think one other thing for like the cultural currency of the Pandora app is that um, when I was listening to a lot of Pandora, you got a sense of how their algorithm worked and like sort of what the Venn diagram of the overlapping songs were. And so like you would be in a cafe and you would hear like three or four songs in a row and you would go, this is a Pandora station. I know this. And then you would look behind the counter And they would have, like, the oldest iPad imaginable (laughs) plugged into power and running the Pandora app. And, uh, you know, just with a headphone jack into whatever speakers were in the cafe. And, like, you'll still see that to this day, is that there there are so many coffee shops and things that are, you know, maybe they're running Spotify or Apple Music now because it gives them greater flexibility. But uh, that was so, so common. And there was no way that that was going to be the setup in just like thousands of businesses uh, if it weren't for this app. For my first pick, uh, I chose Facebook and I didn't choose it because, uh, you know, it's an app I use every day. I actually haven't used the Facebook native app 
in I don't know, eight of these 10 years <laughs> it's existed. I had it for many years. And then when I got my new iPhone last year, did not install it. Yeah. And I think that's a growing trend for a lot of our peers or listeners of the show who kind of have that elevated sense of of what their tech is doing, what their accounts are doing. Uh, because the Facebook iOS app, I think, can be held up as a bad example or as an example of a lot of bad iOS development practices, the kind of uh, weekly releases with ambiguous uh, release notes. Although, Ed, I think you've uncovered something where Apple must have silently told people that you have to put something uh, that's that's actually related to, to what this update is about. I think there were some mentions of this at WWDC this year, and... Um... Some of the big apps like Uber and Lyft have actually been putting real content in their app updates. And if if they've been pressured into it, Facebook can't be far behind. And other things that have come up over the years, like abusing the background audio API to kind of keep collecting data or whatever running in the background. So I, I bring up Facebook because it was there as a native app on day one. And the path it's taken since... Uh, 10 years ago to where it is today is really fascinating. And especially the stark contrast between what it is today and what it was 10 years ago. Um, For example, did you remember that the first version of the Facebook app for iPhone did not launch to your feed or your profile, but instead had its own little springboard from which you would tap on the icon for newsfeed or profile or friends list or Facebook chat slash messages. Um, And you could even... Uh, long press to get into a wiggle mold and rearrange the the Facebook features on its own little springboard. Um, we'll put a link to a screenshot of this in the show notes. So like that's that's one big thing. Like you can't even imagine an app that lots of people open a couple times a day opening to a menu <laughs> and, being, and putting that step in the middle. I don't know because I've never used it because I'm not in the right part of the globe to use it. Uh, so I don't know what the current version is like, but I think that WeChat, which is a huge, you know, it's like the social network in China um, and has has lots of little mini apps contained within it. Uh, I think that for a while it had a similar interface uh, that probably outlasted the one that Facebook had. Yeah, this is I'm showing my bias here where I approach uh, app usage from a predominantly American and even then like a certain subsect of America perspective. But it definitely shows a shift in what Facebook was thinking that they like offered a whole bunch of different little mini services, whereas now it's like feed, 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 feed. Exactly. And even what we were talking about earlier with the sweet solution, Facebook famously went from uh, having this native app from the start that was, uh, as I'll say in a moment, like a lot of custom code to make it look and feel like uh, an Apple app that had been written and installed on the iPhone, like uh, photos or messages. Um, and then kind of halfway through this app's lifespan, Facebook famously was like, well, maybe we can be more nimbler if we write one common HTML5 backend for all of our mobile apps and kind of wrap them in you know, the, a bare bones native application. So that way we can do all these frequent iterations and updates and then Mark Zuckerberg had to eat a little crow when he's like, no, uh, no, <laughs> native application is far superior in terms of performance and the the ability to interact with things on the hardware, like location and media, et cetera, et cetera. So Facebook has gone through all these things and it was fun to think about what it was like 
on day one of the App Store. Yeah, things like media playback so that you can play silent audio in the background <laughs> and drain everybody's battery. And, you know, like you said, uh, sometimes a bad actor. Um, and I, there's definitely like a bat phone from from Tim Cook to uh, <laughs> to Mark Zuckerberg when their uh, when their app really starts behaving badly. Um, haven't been any of those incidents for a few years though. They they seem to be more or less in line. Uh, one thing that you mentioned though, Brian, with like their update strategy, uh, I think that many apps were are, are part of this. But if I have to blame one in particular, I blame Facebook for the demise of the version number. Um, because I just looked, uh, I don't have the app installed, but I looked on the app store and, uh, the current version of the Facebook app is version 179.0. And there has not been a version that ends in anything more than 0.0 in a long, long time. And to wrap up this pick of mine being Facebook, uh, I just felt like I could share a little bit of inside baseball since I was working at Facebook when, uh, the app store happened. So I know a little bit of the story. The very first version of the Facebook app for iOS was the work of one engineer, which really blows my mind because I imagine that team now, even just the iOS team, has to be in the hundreds. And uh, and now it's it was it was the work of Joe Hewitt who came to Facebook in Facebook's first acquisition, which also happened while I was there, of a two-person company called Parakey. It was Joe and Blake Ross. They were both. Uh, working on Firefox previously. I think Blake was a, a co-founder of Firefox and Joe was uh, the creator of Firebug, which was, I think, the first and some would still argue the best developer tools within the browser window. So Joe made the Facebook app and then continued to iterate on it in a way that he uh, open sourced as much as possible. Um, he had a library called 320 named after how many pixels wide the iPhone was, uh, that tried to make a bunch of, at this time, Objective-C libraries and frameworks to do things that were not easily laid out or not available at all in the official SDK. And I think two things he highlighted were a Compose Sheet, which Apple had for sending emails through the built-in mail app. But uh, if you wanted to have a nice little modal pop-up to add a comment or write a Facebook message or something, you couldn't really use it because the only way to get that nice-looking native sheet was to send an email. And uh, he said similar things about browsing through a gallery of photos. At at least in iPhone OS 2.0, there was no nice way to manage uh, a bunch of photos. But again, in keeping with this uh, (laughs) duality of sweet solution web apps versus native apps, Another thing Joe wrote and released was the I, lowercase i, UI library, which was a bunch of uh, front-end web code to make web apps that looked and performed like native iOS apps. And it's fun to go to that website now because it is very much still uh, a library for the pre-iOS 7 days. It's kind of surprising that Apple didn't actually provide that themselves when they said, oh, we're not going to give you an SDK, uh, but you should make mobile web pages that look like full app experiences. It's kind of shocking that they didn't give developers assets that were as comprehensive as this and that third parties had to cobble them together themselves. And a little coda to this, uh, Joe Hewitt stopped 
working on the iOS app within Facebook before he actually left Facebook. I think he's now is a gardener by trade. And um, because he he disagreed with Apple's App Store, uh, App Review, and so on policies, it was too frustrating to work for a company with, that was already as important and had growing importance as Facebook, uh, but still being subject to all the different uh, opaque policies that Apple had in App Review and other things. Brian, you put in our outline here a link to a TechCrunch story about this, which we'll put in the notes. And even for TechCrunch, this is like the clickbaitiest headline. <laughs> yeah. Quote, Facebook iPhone dev quits project over Apple tyranny. Like they were, you know, like he was being repressed. Yeah. TechCrunch, I think, was at peak annoying during uh, like the late 2000s. <laughs> All right. So my first pick was music related. My second pick is also going to be music related, and that is Shazam. Um, I don't know that there's really any way to uh, frame how Shazam felt in 2008, other than that it was just an absolute magic trick. Hold up your phone and it will identify a song out of the air. Um, regardless of where you are, because it can use that data connection. Um, and nobody quite understood how like the music fingerprinting worked or how it worked so quickly. Um, and it was just like, you know, in that era of there's an app for that, that, that was the one app where you could put a question mark after that phrase. There's an app for that. Like that's, that is physically (laughs) possible with the technology that we have. Incredible. Shazam has been through some, I don't know, I would say like weird progression over its now 10-year history. Um, They tried to expand to like identifying other things that weren't songs and doing these like partnerships with advertisers where they would put a little like unique sound snippet in the ad and they'd be like, Shazam, this ad. It's like, it's like, well, I just saw that it's for Coca-Cola. I know if I want to drink Coke, I'll I'll drink Coke. Like, it's fine. Um, And I think that that's kind of faded away. But, um, you know, it's definitely become a verb. Um, Like, to Shazam a song is to use your phone to identify a song, whether you're using their app or not. Uh, Their logo, the blue, uh, like, S logo, is pretty recognizable. Um, They definitely did have some competition over uh, over the years. Uh, I think a few years after they came out, uh, SoundHound came out. And I found that it had better success and quicker recognition. So that's the app that I've used recently. Um, But then in the past couple years, proving its staying power. And I mean, why not? You know, it was a novelty uh, in in 2008, but not a novelty in the sense that it was like a fad or a flash in the pan. It was a new capability that suddenly everybody had. And as long as there are new songs being released, people are still going to want to know what they are. Um, so it's, it's had staying power, uh, a couple years ago, Apple announced that they were integrating Shazam capabilities into Siri. So through an API connection there, where if you ask Siri, what's this song, it activates the microphone and calls out to the Shazam API to do that. And then it was announced at the end of last year that that partnership had gone so well, uh, that, 
they didn't even want to be doing it via an API call or at least an external API call. And that Apple announced that they were going to acquire Shazam. And I think as of now, the, uh, the fate of Shazam on other platforms is still unknown, uh, but it does still exist as a separate app in the App Store as of when we're recording this. Yeah, that Siri integration, I remember when it was announced, uh, it worked even if you didn't have the Shazam app on your phone. Like you said, it, it made that API call completely behind the scenes. So that uh, that was really impressive to me too. It was, it was like you... Like you said, I think the first time I used Shazam, it was 100% pure magic. And then the Siri integration thing, uh, like you said, like Shazam as a verb was in the culture. But now without even like, you know, touching an app or, you know, launching an app, you could do the, uh, hey, dingus, what is this song? And it would tell you it was it's I think it's rare and maybe only Shazam has done it that uh, the same app or the same service can do like these two complete magic tricks that, that to me at least I couldn't have imagined ever. Right. And for being like a one trick pony app, like, like I said, they had that sort of period in the wilderness where they thought like, can we expand our, our, what we do? It's like, you don't need to, you just don't need to. You're the best at the one magic thing that you do. Um, And like I said, it had that staying power where, you know, I think a lot of the same thing happened when Siri itself was launched, you know, um, but mostly like showing off the jokey things that were coded into Siri, you know, like Siri where the, where the dead body is buried, like people would go around showing each other that on their phones. Um, but that like nobody does that anymore because it was a joke one time. It's not funny anymore. But with Shazam, it's the kind of thing that you would still do. It's still useful. Um, maybe not as frequently, but it's just like, it's a tool that exists because it was made possible through the hardware and the app store platform. For my second pick, I went with Instapaper. I too, like Ed scrolled through my purchase list and Instapaper was the first paid app that I downloaded and paid for from the app store. And I know for sure that it was a day one app store app. So it's, it's been in there since the very first day and still, uh, exists today. It's gone through a couple ownership changes since then. Um, it was, as many people know, developed by Marco Arment first as a side project while he was still at Tumblr, and then it was his full-time pursuit, and then he sold it to Betaworks, the startup incubator slash investor slash I don't know what they are <laughs> in New York City, and then more recently Betaworks sold it to Pinterest. This app has not only been on my iPhone since the very first day that I had an iPhone, uh, also since the very first day of the App Store, but this is still an app that is on my first page of the home screen that I use very regularly, if not every day. And I think there's something to be said for that, that uh, not only the service has endured, but it's been uh, useful for that long. Well, endured asterisk in most of the world. Right. So as we record this, if you are in the European Union, you actually cannot use the Instapaper service. I think if you had any articles already downloaded to your phone before the GDPR uh, compliance date, you can still read those. But any other interaction uh, with the Instapaper service has been suspended until they can do whatever they had to do to become GDPR compliant and avoid those bajillion dollar fees. But yeah, Instapaper had a lot of uh, really clever and interesting takes on the iPhone UI. 
Um, I mean, go back and listen to the entire back catalog of Build and Analyze if you want to hear about all the ins and outs. But I remember hearing about sort of like unique paging algorithms. Um, and then the feature that I remember was it was in one of the was in maybe like Instapaper version two or three where uh, he added the continuous scrolling and uh, the tilt scrolling. Did you ever use that feature? I, I mean, I'm more of like a novelty slash magic trick thing, never for actually reading uh, very long articles because you kind of got like a, a minor version of iPad fatigue where you'd you'd have to like hold your wrist at a certain angle or be consistently tilting your phone. Well, I think that it had... I think that it had a way to like tap and lock it so then that it would go at a, at a specific speed. Um, and I definitely used that feature. Yeah. If you were reading like a short article, like a five to 10 minute article, well, maybe like under five minute article, it was, it was very useful. Let you sort of zoom around. Um, but if you're reading like a half hour long article, uh, and you got your phone, right? Yeah. Like you said, right at that right tilt level so that it's exactly your reading speed. Yeah. First you wouldn't move your arm and like your arm would fall asleep. And then you would look up from your phone, which had had this text scrolling by at a constant rate. And like the whole world would be moving. (laughs) Um, it's like, you know, if you've ever been in a movie and like stayed and like carefully read all of the credits and then you stand up and you're like, whoa, Everything is everything is moving downwards now. <laughs> An interview with Marco Arment um, has come out this week where he made a really interesting observation uh, that at the time where the Instapaper iPhone app launched, he had already had it was it started as a web service, a, a website you go to. And even before the app store, you could load a an iPhone optimized view of the article for reading on the subway and save with bookmarklets and that kind of thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, but the very first version, or maybe even a couple versions of the Instapaper iPhone app was just an interface to the website. There was You could log in, certainly, so you could see your articles, but you couldn't create an account from the app. You already had to be an Instapaper user uh, in order to use the app. And in this interview with Marco, he says, uh, it's because at this point, apps weren't the primary thing. They were, like everybody from Facebook, giant company down to Instapaper, their primary uh, presence on the internet was a website, not necessarily an app. And I think that's just another thing that is completely flipped around where a lot of people, maybe their phone is their only computing device. So the app has to be the primary uh, method of creating an account and using the service. All right, I'm going to move on to my third pick now, which is definitely one that has stood the test of time. Actually, the thing that I was surprised about was how early this app was available. And the fact that it was one of my day one downloads for me when I got my first iPhone. And that is 1Password from Agile Bits. Uh, So I'm sure that many of our listeners are familiar with 1Password. It's a password management app. Uh, It's my favorite. I've used it for more than a decade now, turns out. Um, And I'm The reason I said that I'm fascinated that it existed on the App Store so early is because 1Password has made gradual and slow steps towards becoming a really fully functional iOS app because it's always been up against the constraints of which APIs Apple is going to let third-party developers use. So when I first downloaded 1Password, I was able to 
unlock my password vault and view my logins, but there was no copy and paste. <laughs> this makes it not particularly useful for actually logging into things. Um, obviously, once copy and paste came in iPhone OS 3, this got a lot better. You got used to the sort of dance of going back and forth to uh, open up one password, copy your password, go to the web form or the app that you needed to put it into, paste, etc., etc. Um, it then, of course, got even much, much better than that. Uh, once action extensions were allowed, especially within Safari, and they were given the ability to pop up their own interface, pick your username and password combination, and actually fill it into Safari for you. And uh, one of the interesting things is that this does keep improving. So I think was it maybe in, was it iOS 10 that uh, iCloud Keychain was introduced which everyone's like, uh-oh, they're Sherlocking one password. But it's never been very good. Like, you can't manage your passwords. You can't attach things to them. Uh, you can't save a copy of your, like, driver's license or health insurance card or passport in there. It's just pass passwords, and they're kind of invisible. Uh, they've been improving that steadily in iOS 11. They added the ability for those passwords to appear in the QuickType bar above the keyboard. Uh, more... Uh, advancements to that were announced for iOS 12, and everyone's like, oh, this is not looking good for 1Password. And then they said, and including for third-party password managers. And everyone went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so this app is still like massively improving because of the system integrations uh, that are going on. Um, and not the kind of thing we usually do, but breaking news. This is news from this morning as we're recording uh, on the anniversary of the uh, the App Store. Um was this report from uh, from BGR um, that the headline was a little bit misleading. Uh, comes in two parts. Sounds like the first part is true and the second part is false. It says, Apple to deploy 1Password to all 123,000 employees acquisition talks underway. So uh, Agile Bits came out uh, later and said, nope, we're not getting acquired. Uh, but they didn't deny the part about Apple buying a giant site license <laughs> for one password, uh, which which bodes well uh, for their ability to uh, be friendly with Apple and get even more of those awesome system features uh, working with what is you know really a well designed app uh, that is continuing on now, in part thanks to giant corporate deals like that, and in part thanks to those other uh, features in the App Store like adding subscription pricing, which is now uh, 1Password's preferred way of operating. Um, and man, 1Password with Face ID, magic, like on level of Shazam magic. Um, it's just, you don't, even, you don't even have to move your finger, you just open the app and wait for a second and you're in. It is brilliant. I am too a 1Password user. However, I was not uh, using them at day one of the App Store. And I kind of have regrets because I think at that stage in my life, I was just using the same password for everything. And I'm lucky to have come out of it uh, unscathed, as far as I know. <laughs> my next pick goes to SimpleNote. This app, I don't think was in day one of the App Store, but it was very much in the early days of the App Store. So much so, in fact, that uh, the very early screenshots of SimpleNote um, are from that era where, much like Instapaper, the first version of Instapaper, the the way to make an app that really looked and felt premium was to, to make it look like it, it was an app Apple had made, meaning it had the the like kind of blue-gray gradient tab bars 
at the top and the bottom, like early Safari. And I came to Simple Note by way of John Gruber's review of Simple Note on Daring Fireball, as I think many people did because he reviewed it pretty early on in its life cycle. And uh, his review <laughs> essentially boiled down to two concerns. One, it's like Apple's Notes app, but uh, my notes are in Helvetica instead of Markerfeld. <laughs> and two, the notes sync online at this point through their proprietary syncing platform uh, to a web app. So you could get your same notes on your desktop as you were writing on your phone. That was its big selling point, right? Um, because this is you know way, way pre-iCloud. Uh, this was one of your very few ways of of getting text just off of your device, period, without emailing it to yourself. Right, exactly. Um, I th- I find it interesting that John Gruber, really, as far as I know, was was a big driving factor in early Simple Note adoption. And uh, later he went on to make his own uh, Notes app for the iOS ecosystem that had a custom syncing component in Vesper. Uh, so it's clear that it's been a pursuit of his for a while. I think the one negative aspect of his review was that its icon was trash. <laughs> and, and I have to agree because the icon was of like a dark green locker with a sticky note on the front, um, which I guess kind of conveys the, the message that this is a note taking app. But uh, there's an interesting uh, retrospective from Tap 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 which was a design studio that I guess uh, is still around because they make Camera Plus. But at the time, uh, I look at I look at their site on the Wayback Machine. I was like, oh, yes, this is very much one of the premier studios of the early App Store days that have like the, the skeuomorphic designs that are way like heavily designed instead of the kind of understated flat minimalism of a post iOS 7 world. <laughs> I'm looking at this now on the Wayback Machine. And um, just the style of their blog, it's like a like a faux piece of paper centered in the middle, and in the background there's sort of like a dark brushed aluminum thing going on. And then at the top there's their logo, which is the words tap 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 with like fingerprints on it. And then there's a piece of sushi coming out of the left, and then there's like a little Zen garden in the header um, where it says our blog blog blog. Um, and there are three rocks and then there's the blog post, which is, um, which has a lot of screenshots and and looks very interesting to see how they approached this problem. But it's very, um, man, it's very like early two thousands WordPress, isn't it? That's an excellent segue because simple note was later acquired by automatic, the parent company of WordPress. I did not even plan that, but it is, it is appropriate. Uh, and, and it continues today, um, I have transitioned back into Apple's own notes program for the majority of that kind of note taking on both uh, my desktop and my phone. But every once I still have a simple note account and every once in a while I dip back into it and it's kind of a fun time capsule to see what I was writing about the last time I signed in. Um, I'm, I'm mostly glad for the company that they've been acquired and they can continue on. Uh, I have noticed, however, that uh, they did eventually make a native Mac app instead of relying on the website for their desktop syncing. Uh, and I've noticed, I think on their blog or their Twitter account recently, that they are toying with the idea of porting their Mac app to Electron. And I just hope that they can resist that temptation. <laughs> okay, so uh, for my fourth pick, I'm going to go to one that 
um, is not a big name that probably all of our listeners remember. Like my first three, Pandora, Shazam, 1Password. Even if Pandora is kind of on death's door, um, <laughs> all of these are still around, right? Um, well, maybe not death's door, more like their third pivot. But my, my fourth one is uh, an app called Twinkle. Did you ever use this, Brian? I didn't. I, re- I remember being aware of it, but I, by the time I was really heavily into Twitter, I had moved I'd chosen Tweety. Right. So this was one of a crop of weird early Twitter apps that came to the iOS app store in the first year of the store's existence, which was the second year or so of Twitter's existence. When Twitter was a lot of nerds and still pretty quiet, um, I remember, and this is talking about how I used it on the desktop, I was using Twitterific on the desktop, and I remember having growl notifications, the the equivalent of push notifications, for and sounds for each tweet, <laughs> which would just be like, I mean, that would be insane if you did that now. I, I, I try to pare back my follow list and and not get too overloaded and still be a completionist on Twitter. Um, but that would just be crazy. It would, it would just be every 10 seconds or something like that. Um, but it was, you know, you could have a tweet and wait 20 minutes and for the next tweet, um, a simpler time. Um, anyway, though, um, at this time on the App Store, nobody quite knew the way to use Twitter on their iPhone because Twitter was not there on day one. I mean, them and Facebook, you know, th- there have been the questions about, like, did they approach their mobile strategy appropriately, especially with Facebook? Um, but Twitter was not focused on the, the iPhone market, the smartphone market. They were still relying on their 40404 SMS service where you could text your tweets or even text direct messages to this shortcode number, and then they would get relayed on through the Twitter backend, sort of the way that they started before they were even on the desktop. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a desert. Um, although I think that Twitterific gets the claim of being first to the iOS app store. They were there. I think that they were there on day one. I think there are stories, I was having a little trouble tracking these down, but I think that there are stories of them being one of those developers at the icon factory that is makers of Twitterific who went all in on writing native code before it was allowed and before there was an SDK. Um, and that a lot of that, there was a jailbreak version of Twitterific, I believe, although um, it might have been internal only. Um, and then it was basically ready on on the first day of the App Store. Um, also around this time, uh, like you said, Tweety was available, RIP Tweety. Um, and I thought it was interesting that you told the story of Facebook and I feel like Joe Hewitt should be right there. Uh, you know, I had not heard that name, but he should be right there with Lauren Brichter, mm-hmm. the creator of Tweety, as someone who was you know a one man team who really did a lot for uh, you know what wound up being a huge ecosystem in in Twitter. Um, and of course, we like I said, R.I.P. You know, uh, Lauren's code got bought by Twitter, um, especially Tweety for Mac, and then that was the official client, and now there is no official Mac client. Um, they're treating the desktop now the way that they were treating the smartphone 10 years ago. Kind of interesting. Um, but a lot of these apps were not only 
um, just trying to figure out what the experience for Twitter on iOS should be, but like defining it. I mean, Twitterific gets credit for coining the word tweet and for associating a bird with Twitter. I mean, like how many Twitter users do not realize that? The major, the overwhelming majority. Right. That that all came out of um, what was a Mac app first and then an iOS app. Um, and Tweety, uh, Lauren Brichter invented pull to refresh um, and included it in that app. And of course, that is just ubiquitous, not only on iOS, but on com- like in computing in general. I expect to be able to pull to refresh on Mac apps and on some of them it works um, and some of them it doesn't. Um, one thing that was interesting about Twinkle and was one of the reasons I started using it was that it was the first client that was able to tag individual tweets with geolocation. Um, so Twitterific had this thing where they would do geolocation, again, using one of the new features of the, of the iPhone, being able to tap in directly to the GPS. Um, and, but their hack was that they would just get your GPS coordinates and then change the location field in your Twitter bio. So if you had written, so in my case, if I had like written Brooklyn, New York, and then activated the the geo feature in Twitterific, it would have just obliterated the text and put in the two coordinate numbers, which like depending on the app that you were using, or if you plugged it into a mapping service, you could figure out where that was, but it was overwriting that human readable information. The thing that Twinkle did in this very bubbly, like stars and and oh my gosh, like the, the interface is wild. Um, but the thing that it did was it was a hack. Like it was a like alongside hack. So to use this feature in Twinkle, you had to sign up for a separate Twinkle account. Oh. And then what it was doing was your Twinkle account, their database was basically a database of tweet IDs paired with location and users of their own service. And so they would load in tweets from the Twitter API and then cross-reference those with their database and tell you where they were were tweeted from. And it only worked with other Twinkle users, obviously, but it was one of the most popular clients at the time. Um, And I found a number of the people that I first followed on Twitter that way because I was in Ithaca, New York for grad school and like fairly small community, but fairly nerdy community and like found all these people who are also using Twinkle on their iPhones. It's just like it, it is definitely something from a different era and a sort of a weird, you know, it was a really weird solution that somehow managed to work. Um, and again, the, the limitations of this app and uh, any of the contemporaneous Twitter apps at the time, no push notifications don't exist yet. Um, no way to open links in within the app because uh, you know, WebView within app doesn't exist yet. Or, or as I've written here in our outline, basically anything modern that you would expect from, from uh, a Twitter client. I guess they did also have some other weird side layer where they allowed you to upload photos and post links to the photos within your tweets. But it was all just a big pile of hacks on top of... SMS. Regarding that photo thing, I'm sure it was one of the many third-party image hosts that 
sprouted up before Twitter finally brought it image hosting in-house like TwitPic or YFrog. Oh my gosh, yes. They all had these dumb names. <laughs> they really did. Did you ever I I, I remember even once um even once that stuff got like a little bit more mature, I used I used milkshake, which was spelled milkshake. With yeah, no vowels. That's right. Very web two point mm-hmm. Uh yeah, all of that stuff was was basically being invented by these uh, ambitious developers, and the developers of Twinkle were Tapulous, which uh, I think as we were chatting before the show, Brian, you said that they were like an unimpeachable app developer for a while. Um, you may not have heard of Twinkle or known that they uh, were the developers, but uh, wait till my next pick and uh, you'll probably recall them. Good tease, too. I'll make my next pick quick. Uh, it's also a little bit of a cheat because it's a category, but there were two web apps going back to this whole sweet solution at uh, leading up to the App Store by Nevin Mergen, who is now of Panic. Um, Nevin has worked on a bunch of native iOS apps that are beloved by me, I think by you, Ed, and I think in general, including The Incident, Space Age, Stagehand. Uh, that's part of his big bucket software company. And also uh, the kind of text-based adventure games, or not even adventure, but text-based uh, make-you-think games, Black Bar and Gray Out. But the web apps I'd like to talk about are, uh, one is called Glyphboard, which exists so very much in a certain early time of iOS, because not only is it a web app designed uh, just to be looked at on a website designed to be looked at on iPhone-sized screens, but it also basically predates emoji usage on the iPhone, because it solely serves to be a grid of Unicode symbols that you can open, copy, and exit out of the website and paste to wherever you're you need to use them. And it still exists. <laughs> I just opened the link up and on my iMac, I stretched it out to, you know, 4,000 pixels wide and the grid of icons is now just a straight line of icons. And I think it's really funny if you look at it now, some of the Unicode, uh, whatever they're called, like the code points in Unicode have been replaced with the emoji symbols. I, I can see the P symbol, the skull and crossbones are now not like the, the black and white font character, but the full color emoji. The watch is Apple Watch. But then there are some that, that are not. Like, um, there's all this weird fragmentation that's going on in Unicode. Like the snowman. There's now two snowman emoji, um, one with snowflakes and one without. But then there's still also the just, like, plain snowman character, which is just, like, two blobs, a grumpy face, and a fez on his head. <laughs> oh, that's one of my favorite ones. I'll see if I can find a link for the show notes, because that character renders differently in like different browsers, not even different systems. The other web app by Nevin I want to highlight is PyGuy, which is a simple Pac-Man clone purely in uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. So it's something you can run in the browser on your iPhone, but it also had all the requisite HTML5 tags and meta tags so that it could be saved as a home screen app to your iPhone and run in its own Chromeless application container, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I bring these up not as like counterpoints to the App Store necessarily, um, but uh, just from a personal standpoint, around this time in my career, in my life, uh, I knew I had a basic grasp on 
front-end web languages, the HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And I had absolutely no idea uh, how to make any kind of native app in Objective-C. And I think I came to these two web apps through discussions of the, the Sweet Solution web app versus native app around this time and realized that basically just through these uh, meta tags that I 100% copied from Nevin Mergen's web apps for my own side projects, that it was not necessarily the sweetest solution, but it was still viable for little rinky-dink things that I would do to amuse myself in my spare time. So yeah, you mentioned those as examples of some early iOS games, and we haven't touched much on games in our picks so far. So I'll, I'll pick one um, that I think... Uh, it was not my favorite game, but I definitely played it for a while um, and is so emblematic of early iOS gaming. Uh, like I said, from from the firm Tapulous, uh, and the game is Tap Tap Revenge. So this was one of the hottest early iPhone games, at least as far as I could tell. Um, and it's basically a music and rhythm game in the spirit of Guitar Hero. So instead of having a unwieldy plastic controller with buttons to push, uh, you had three tap targets on the screen and you had to tap them in rhythm, uh, taking advantage of the multi-touch interface and the fact that you could have to press one, two, or all three at once. Um, and they designed it to you know fly you through these sort of uh, psychedelic landscapes as as the music played and uh, grade you and score you as you went along in terms of your rhythmic accuracy. Um, I think that it started off with kind of like a lot of songs that you'd never heard of, uh, as opposed to Guitar Hero, which was um, mostly covers, but like songs that they expected you to to know something about. (laughs) Um, One of my memories of this game is that like, this is a weird story, but <laughs> there's this terrible band, at least in my opinion. Don't 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 email me. Um, terrible band called 303, which uh, had a uh, an an awfully problematic song that I first heard in Tap Tap Revenge, and then went to like number seven on the U.S. charts and like catapulted them to their however much fame that they had. And the first place I ever heard it was in this iOS game. Um, and then once they like, once they got some of these like hit singles in their game, they started just making tons of spin-off versions. And this was like, this was their cash cow. Once they were able to get these deals with not just like weird up and coming artists that you'd never heard of, um, but with big names and, the way that their business model was formed was, remember, this was before in-app purchases, so they couldn't be like, oh, download new songs, get a new level pack within the game, or even buy more gems, you know, none of that. So the only way that they were going to make more money was to keep creating new apps with new song collections in them. So we'll link to a Wayback Machine version of their, like, app catalog page, um which has Twinkle all the way down at the bottom, and then like a dozen different versions of Tap Tap. Uh, there's like Lady Gaga Tap Tap. Um, there are just like straight sequels. And the notion was that each of these was like two, three, five dollars And this was the only way that they were going to keep the lights on, basically, was by convincing you 
to not just keep playing the version of Tap Tap that you had, but to download the next one and the next one and the next one. And uh, that ran its course. Um, and Tap Tap Revenge is not, uh, you know, it, it is not the cash cow anymore. I don't even know exactly what the fate of Tapulus was, but uh, this was another case of, you know, a new form of gaming, um, or at least an evolution of an existing form of gaming uh, that made it a lot more convenient. Obviously, there was a portability factor, but that that whole thing of um, just getting rid of the need to have like massive un- buy massive unwieldy controllers that then you have to like put behind your couch and are in a closet or like th- thrown out or recycled or given to goodwill at this point uh, ten years later. Um, tap tap doesn't run anymore. I think it's a 32 bit app. Um, but apart from that, uh, there's no reason, uh, that it couldn't sort of still exist today. Whereas a lot of those other rhythm games, um, you know, just the hardware runs its course. Tap tap revenge, tap tap revolution, all the tap tap games, all the taps. They were another magic moment for me. Like you said, it, it took the gameplay that was familiar from something that was, you know, hundreds of dollars of equipment for the console and the specialized plastic guitar controller, all that stuff boiled down into your phone. And I think it's also worth mentioning that this was before retina screens. So the graphics were, you know, 320 by 480 or whatever the original display was. And they still looked better than anything I'd ever seen on a portable game system. To say nothing of how cool or how authentic the actual gameplay itself was, Tap Tap was just a very colorful, uh, <laughs> constantly moving, graphically intensive game that redefined what the, the the capabilities of a mobile gaming system could be for me. Well, they had that low resolution, but even from the original iPhone, there was the 60 frame per second capability that was built into the device to make it so that the scrolling experience was fluid and felt natural. And they built upon that by saying, if we, even if we have basically like low res assets that were, you know, scaling in non optimal ways, if they are flying at you extremely quickly with 60 frames per second smoothness, it's still going to feel like almost a better experience than you would get, you know, well, like honestly, playing Guitar Hero on like an SD TV, which was, you know, something that I was, you know, doing with my friends in college like a year or two before this game was released. You know, we laugh at the technology now, but it did not only seem like a lateral move, but in some ways an upgrade. And uh, that's a nice segue into my final pick, which is, again, a kind of a cheat by doing a pick of a a couple games in the same genre. Uh, But before I had an iPhone, any mobile gaming I was doing was on a Nintendo DS. And I think it was the first generation like slim or light DS light. Uh, so that gives you an idea of where the graphics were and the game I spent by far the most time on in the Nintendo DS was Picross and the DS version of Picross. Uh, I know what this goes by a bunch of names, nonograms, picture puzzles, whatever. It's, it's like a combination of, a crossword and pseudo I don't know what it is. It's it's a numbers puzzle. If you know them, you love them or you hate them. If you don't know them, uh you may lose your life to them as I did. It's a numbers puzzle where you like solve for filling out a picture pixel by pixel. Yes. Yeah. So when I finally got an iPhone, 
um, you know, you're, you're blown away by so many things, your first truly capable smartphone. And I realized it had, it had, or would eventually replace so many things. Uh, certainly a phone, an iPod, point and shoot camera, a GPS for the car, all these things. And then finally I was like, well, if it has a good Picross game, it will replace my Nintendo DS. I can get rid of that thing that, uh, Seems so archaic now that like you have to take all your different cartridges with you. It had its own proprietary charger, just a mess. So this is my moment to shine. Like I've been for 10 years trying every Picross game <laughs> that I can find that doesn't look stupid from its you know store listing. The first one I can remember using was called Pick Grid. Uh, when I checked it earlier, it has also been kind of pulled from the store because it's still listed, but no one can get it because it's 32 bit. Uh, that one was okay. There was one called Pixel Logic, which had the uh, the innovation of being able to compress certain parts of the Picross grid, so you could focus on like a, a subset if you were you know really trying to figure out one piece of the picture. So it would make giant puzzles work on the confined screen of the iPhone. That one I think is still around and updated. There was a really goofy one called Paint It Back, which tried to introduce like a backstory where you're an artist um, who is trying to replace art that has been stolen out of a museum and there are different wings. But of course you do it through the, the, the Picross nonogram method. And the most recent one I've tried that I really, really enjoyed because it was like very simple and didn't try to do a whole lot of gimmicks is called Picross Touch. Although I did notice that it would give you the Unity engine splash screen. And I, I again, I've never messed around with unity or unreal or any of the gaming engines, but I just always assumed that they were for like 3d open worlds, but I guess you can also build a a very simple two dimensional, you know, paint by numbers, pixel game in them as well. That's cool. And if this type of game is the kind of thing that you could do on pencil and paper before, uh, before the iPhone and, uh, variations on it are going to keep existing so like i think this was featured a day or two ago um there's a game called hexalogic uh which is very much the same kind of genre of app except with a hexagonal grid and you like have to put dots within uh within the grid to add up to certain numbers and um you know just featured on the app store a couple days ago so uh yeah little puzzle games uh are definitely right in the iPhone's wheelhouse. I will check that one out as soon as we stop recording. I have a couple of quick honorable mentions from uh, from scrolling through my purchase tab. Uh, Yelp wins as the only app that I downloaded the first day that I had an iPhone and is still installed and is still the same like continuous version history of the app. Because um, like one password has gone through things where they did uh, you know major upgrades by having a separate app and. You know, that whole phase of the app store economy that we just glossed over because <laughs> you've heard it all before, I'm sure. Um, and a similar one um, this week and last week, I've been watching a lot of Wimbledon um, and the tennis tournament launched their app in 2009. So that was the first time that they actually held the tournament after the app was launched because it usually begins in June. Um and that one has also been maintained as the same app ever since. So that one goes on and off my phone. You know, as soon as the tournament is over, after two weeks, I can delete it and wait till the next year um, and then re-download it. But that one 
also has a, a continuous trail going back basically as far as iOS development was useful to them. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember using that one too. Um, they, they even had like radio coverage at one point, um, which is ridiculous. If you've ever tried to listen to a tennis match, um, <laughs> because <laughs> they're trying to describe the action, which is far faster than anyone can talk. And you just hear the ball going, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they had like a really good like personality and, and crew um, on Radio Wimbledon for a few years. And I remember... Um, when I would have to like walk between classes or things like that. And I wanted to keep up with the score of a game instead of like checking, like, you know, pulling out my phone, refreshing the scores back, back and forth, back and forth, just plugged in my headphones again on the, you know, data streaming. And, um, even if you can't tell what the heck is going on in the individual points themselves, they at least give you the updated scores. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that rounds out our picks for, um, you know, we're, we're not saying that these are the uh, the 10 best apps ever, um, and we certainly talked about more than 10 along the way. But um, I think a representative sample of what was available at or near the launch of the App Store and the directions that uh, the App Store was able to propel software over the past, uh, past 10 years. So, of course, if you have... Uh, favorite apps that you wish were on this list that we didn't cover and you think uh, merit follow-up in a future show, you can always get in touch with us. Probably easiest way to do that is on Twitter, where we are at simple underscore beep. You can also go to our website, simplebeep.com, if you want to uh, write a longer email to us on our contact form, maybe point us to a bunch of links, um, whatever whatever tickles your fancy. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people sharing they're at uh, the bottom of their purchase tab this week. So whatever method is easiest for you, we're, we're definitely interested in seeing them. Of course, you can also get in touch with us individually on Twitter. I am at eCormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. That wraps it up. So uh, happy anniversary, App Store. And uh, here's to the next 10 years of uh, of iOS software. <laughs>